Emmons K. Talk YA now presents Ruin and Rising, Part 2 of the Shadow and Bone Trilogy by Lee Bardugo. Welcome back to M&K Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our podcast where we talk about young adult fiction or things that we claim are young adult fiction and maybe really aren't. <laughs> we really just talk about whatever we want. <laughs> Mostly we talk about other things like how people die and history. <laughs> or how to survive hypothermia. <laughs> or falling into, yeah, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Or space. Although we didn't say how to survive, we just said how you'll die while you're there. That's <laughs> true. You can't survive, Although, you're just going to die. And it'll hurt really bad the entire time you're dying. <laughs> oh, man. Well, well, on that note. <laughs> I guess a lot of people died in this book, so it's kind of an appropriate topic. I actually, like, for research this week, I was thinking about all the things I would have researched that we've already researched. <laughs> All the things we would have researched that we already I mean, researched? like, I was oh, like, like, you know, like, faking your death, or, um, uh, what was another one that I was thinking of, and I was just like, oh, we already did that. <laughs> That's true. And that wasn't even in this book, was it? No. Well, I mean, she faked the saint's death at the end. I mean, she... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, our research was, like, oh, for... yeah. I think that was for another book. Yeah, I think so, too. So that's... There's a lot of people faking their death. <laughs> Or we have, we're interested in books where people do that or something. Um, okay. So where do we want to even start with this ending of this amazing series? Okay, yeah, I guess we should say this is the final chapter, or ten chapters, of the Grisha trilogy. Ruin and Rise. <laughs> we didn't even announce the book. Ruin and Rising, part two. We've read it all and we're going to say all the secrets. All the spoilers. All of them. Every spoiler. And also, speaking of spoilers, I think I won the bet. Okay, well, I have a question about that. (laughs) I think I need to go back and re-listen, because did we say, because Alina, Saint Alina, is dead for all intents and purposes. They burned next to each other. They, her character, her her role in this world ceased to be. So... I don't know. I'll let you win, but I'm doing it uh, begrudgingly. That kind of reminds me of like when um, the last Harry Potter book came out. I had so many bets on what was going to happen, and I was going to bet that Harry was going to die. And it's the same thing. Like in a weird way, it's like he does kind of die, but then he comes back, and yeah, he's not yeah. necessarily dead at the end, but he kind of died. So what does that mean? A part of him dies, yeah. and a part of. Uh, the same thing with Mal. Um, I mean... Yeah, even more so than she did, because he actually died. <laughs> and then came back. And I was so... I was so surprised at that, because we had the whole lead-up with learning about um, Morozova and how his daughter died, and then he brought her back to life, but he had to use that Morzos to do it. And I was, like, a little bit worried when they brought Mal back, because I was like, oh. Is this kind of going to be the same thing? Yeah, I'm still kind of confused about that. Do you think that was like a bit of a cop-out to have him survive? Yeah, I do. I mean, I am so glad he did because I would have been destroyed if he had died. But I did not expect him to come back to life after she stabs him in the chest. (laughs) And I think the explanation was like iffy at best. Like, Like, it doesn't really make sense that it, like, balanced out the fact that someone else got a life they shouldn't have had, so he also gets a life he shouldn't have had? Did everyone in this line die twice? I think so. I mean, I think it was more like she killed the part of him that was the third amplifier. So she just happened to strike the right nerve? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she got it the right spot. Because also the sea... Ser- or the sea... What was it? Um, the, the sea whip? The sea whip and the... Stag did not come back to life. They didn't get a second chance. That's very true. <laughs> I'm just, 
I just have some questions. Yeah, but I am I am glad that he made it and I think that her being with him because I really thought they there wasn't a way it would work. So it's nice that they kind of both became ordinary, but they also both lost something so they can really relate to each other with that, but they also can like have this peaceful life that they maybe dreamt of as children, but wasn't really a possibility for most of the books for them. Yeah, and I I, I also kind of thought that, like, you know how Bagra kept saying you may get the power of the third amplifier, or you, you might be able to stop the shadow fold, but you might not be able to survive the cost of it? Mm-hmm. And I really thought that Mal's death was going to be the cost of it. Yeah. And, I mean, I think both of them losing their powers, there's still a loss there. I think Nikolai's the one who's like, loss is loss. But... I it, it wasn't what I expected. Yeah. At all. But the ending, oh my gosh. I honestly, I started, to, I teared up at the end. And I don't cry that often in books. But the part that really got me was when um, they were, they opened the orphanage and they kept getting visitors. Like Nikolai comes to visit them in disguise. And then Zoya comes and she brings Alina the Kefta, the blue Kefta, and mm-hmm. says, you'll always be one of us. Oh my God. I was like... I was sitting on the L and I was like, stop crying. Stop. Just stop crying. And I also, I just love that it like was again this kind of flashback to their earlier life. And she always felt this kind of draw to protect kids a little bit. So it was just kind of a cool, like, I really believed it. Except I also kept forgetting that she has an ordinary life timeline again. I kept thinking like, (laughs) I wonder if she's there forever. And then I remembered. No, and but and it is such a nice tie-in with how the chapters always end with the boy and the girl. I mean, you could tell that Lee Bardugo just had the end planned, it seems like it at least, mm-hmm. throughout the entire series because she just tied it in together so, so well, and it it was so beautiful. <laughs> it really was. It felt like an appropriate happy ending, especially because other people still died. It was still like a rough go there for everyone, and no one had yeah. like... Like, everyone lost something, to your point earlier. Like, even Nikolai and even, you know, like, a lot of people got kind of what they wanted, but they had to give up another piece of what they wanted to get there. Yeah, I did feel bad for Nikolai whenever she turned him down. Yeah. I mean, but part of me was wondering, like, do you think he was really in love with her, or was he just in love with the idea of the Sun Summoner? I think that he always had grown up kind of thinking he wouldn't marry for love he'd marry for political purposes so I don't Mm -hmm. so I don't think he even necessarily let himself love her in that way fully you know I think like that was always his primary objective was the political piece but I do think he cared for her and yeah I do too but and he probably got his hopes up that he might be able to you know marry for love yeah yeah but I also think he's like the kind of guy I mean he'll probably have still options and then he can still hopefully pick a good option that is also has the potential for love down the road. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, who can resist him? We can. We can. That's for sure. (laughs) I didn't like how, okay. I I didn't like how he turned into a bird though. (laughs) Can we talk about that? Yeah, that was kind of weird. Well, it was, it was also just kind of weird that that only happened to him. Yeah, like, I mean, maybe he did, the Darkling did it because he knew that, I don't know, maybe that it would affect her a lot, but I feel like if you're doing that, why not turn Mal into a bird? Or everyone. Yeah, or like any, like, if that's, on the one hand, he's like, let's just rip this person into half for, like, no particular reason. This guy's, like, actually kind of a threat to his power. Why wouldn't he kill him if he's fine with killing people? I think maybe he was, like, taunting with her. Maybe he thought that, like, this would be even worse. I don't know. It was it was it was like a sidebar that I didn't really need, it, and it was it was weird. And there wasn't like quite enough to it because we didn't re- like he kept appearing, but he also like seemed to always be able to resist. Like I think it would have been better if he killed one of them or something. Yeah, because then there'd be a lot more yeah guilt and yeah there'd be a lot more to deal with when you or even just returns. injured one of them or something. But like you know. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like he always was still ultimately in control. So even though I felt bad for him, I kind of didn't feel as bad for him as I would have. I agree. And it also was just, there was like an absurdity to it that 
kept me from taking it seriously. Like, every time he appeared, I was like, oh, there's Nikolai the Perv Man. Like, <laughs> just sitting up in a tree watching them. It was just like, I don't know. And again, he's always been so hopeful and so plan-oriented. I also didn't buy that he was, like, so... That this, like, broke him. Yeah. I, that quickly. I agree. And I, I mean, honestly, he was so upset. I, I thought that he might kill himself. Mm-hmm. I was kind of anticipating that. And I would... Especially when that when she tries to reverse it, and you can see you can saw like the shadows receding, and then it stopped working, and he got like really upset. I was like, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't do something bad. Yeah, or I thought he'd show up again in the like final fight scene or something. I guess he did. Well, did at the, he did. I guess he did. But it, I felt like it was like late enough in the fight scene that he didn't really make a difference. I mean, I guess it kind of mm-hmm. did, but. No, know. it was almost like he he just had to be there so we could see him go back to, to normal. Yeah. It's another one of those books, though, too, where, I mean, I guess everything was really fast-paced in all three of these books, but it sort of felt like we've been looking for the Firebird for, like, two books. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and then we just, like, find him, abandon that idea, completely change our whole plan because, like, why didn't we come up with an alternative to the third amplifier in the first place? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And I, but I was kind of glad that they didn't have to kill the Firebird because part of me was getting really upset at them like killing all these really powerful, beautiful creatures just so they could have its power. And so I'm kind of glad that they didn't have to do that. Yeah. Although I guess killing Maul's not any better. But, <laughs> <laughs> but at least Mal could like say, I agree to this plan. Exactly. They didn't like hunt him against yeah. his will. Also, did we see a f- conclusion with uh, Tamar and Nadia? No, we didn't. I was hoping that they'd be like more because we kind of saw David and uh, Jenny at the end, but we didn't. We saw Tamar, but we didn't see Nadia, right? In the like uh, epilogue, right? And I know Talia said something about how they were going to stay on and serve. <clears throat> I, I guess Jenya and Zoya are now the leaders of the Second Army, um, and David, but. Right? And David, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't get a sense of how, of of Nadia staying with them. Yeah. But I guess they would, because she's part of the second army. But yeah, we don't, we didn't really get to see a moment with them. I just, I, I started, I, you know, I said, like, I want her to be more of a character. And I felt like she was starting to be, and she just still never quite got her moment in the sun. <laughs> I know. And especially when her brother, Adric, lost his arm, I thought maybe that would, like, spark something in her, and maybe she would... I didn't expect her to, like, betray them or anything, like Sergei, but I don't know. I thought that would kind of give her more of a spotlight, too. Yeah. And it didn't happen. Again, even just, even just like, a couple one-line... Like, she didn't even really say much. <laughs> she didn't. <laughs> I don't know. She really didn't. I like I just like I really wanted to like her more than I got a chance to so I was a little bummed about that but I really liked hearing the story about Bagra and Morozova and Mal's ancestors and I was also freaking out when I thought for a second that the Darkling and Alina might be related (laughs) that would have been pretty bad I was like oh that's even worse than the using Mal's face thing but yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about Bagra. Okay. And Morozova. Yep. So I was wrong about it being the Darkling's dad, but I was almost right. <laughs> yeah, you were, cl- I mean, grandfather. Yeah, close. family. Except he didn't even meet Morozova. I'm also kind of curious, is Morozova still out there somewhere, do you think? Ooh, is there going to be a sequel? <laughs> Morozova's Revenge? <laughs> well, I don't even think it would necessarily be Revenge, but... If he was so powerful, it would be hard to kill him. He obviously didn't die when he, you know, fell in the river. Where, where, I know. where, where is he right now? Maybe he's, like, riding around with the firebird somewhere. I actually really liked how the Darkling didn't have a dad. Yeah. Or he did, but you know, he didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. Because the entire time we kept saying, like, who's his father? Who, like, who, who is this? He must be a really powerful um, Grisha. Like, who's it going to be? And then... I just loved Bagra's answer. She was like, well, I wanted a kid, so I found a really powerful heartrender, and I don't even remember his name. <laughs> yeah, that was good. And I think it painted her in a different light. Like, I get, like, I knew that she had to have, like, obviously she raised the Darkling, and he didn't just become the way he was. So I was kind of 
it was cool to get more of like why she kind of raised him that way, like how she had grown up and what she had gone through and suffered and being alone and all of that. Yeah, and how she kind of taught him that no one was his equal. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the idea of not being safe, right? So that he grew up without ever having a place to be safe. And that, I think that, don't they say that for children, that's like one of the most important things in raising a kid is like they need to feel safe. And so having that, living with that fear as a young kid, I feel like we saw the results of that when he was an adult. Yeah, and you even saw it like right up to the end. I mean, I think big part of what motivated him too is still this, or at least what made him want Alina was the fact that it was the first person he could relate to at all, basically. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't didn't feel alone. And I just I did I did kind of feel sorry for him. I did too. I mean, I'm glad he's gone, but I felt sorry for him. Like I feel like it's too bad. That's how it had to go. But I'm still kind of curious. He's been around for so long. Obviously, he's lost a lot of people. But I wonder if he was ever, like, I wonder if, you know, when he was 20-something, if he fell in love with someone or, you know. I would like more of a backstory. But I feel like he didn't because I feel like the loneliness was just... Yeah, I get the sense that he didn't. Yeah. But that makes me even more sad. Well, it kind of reminded me of, like, I always think about how people who have really, like, off-the-charts IQs... Like, people who are just leaps and bounds smarter than the rest of us. I always Mm -hmm. wonder, like, how isolating and how lonely would that feel that there's no one who can be at your level? Mm -hmm. And I always wonder if it's, like, if it's kind of a bad feeling to be, like, there's no one who can keep up with you, really. Have you ever read Flowers for Algernon? Yeah. That's what it, like, reminds me of. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's this human need to you want to like stand out but still be part of the group right you want or you want to be like the most interesting person (laughs) in the group or something like you don't want to be isolated you want to connect to people lost in the crowd but you don't want to be so unique that like you're not part of the crowd at the same time I read something kind of cool that um explains why people fear loneliness so much and why so many people fear being alone um, and okay. they said it's it like goes back to our caveman roots. So if you were, let's say, a caveman in a tribe and you were exiled, um, mm-hmm. that was like a really scary thing because there was back then, I guess, you know, there's so many safety and numbers like you couldn't survive on your own really back then. You had to have the protection of a clan or a tribe. And so being mm-hmm. cast out and being alone, it equates to death essentially like you can't survive on your own so being by yourself um would mean certain death and that's why we still kind of have this innate fear about loneliness or being alone or not connecting with people or not like having a group of people that you feel like you belong to isn't that kind of interesting it is yeah it makes sense like you'd be so vulnerable without the protection of your of your tribe it's so crazy to think about all the things that we have or that we do and why, like, how different life was when we when humans came about and mm-hmm. why we developed the way we did. Like, even things like I was reading this thing about why we dream, hmm. and they're not really sure why we dream, but um, one potential argument or something had to do with we had to be prepared to react to... Because a lot of dreams aren't actually good if you think about them. Like, oh, yeah. a lot of them are you're chasing, you're being chased, you're being... People unfollow you on Instagram. You know, you showed up naked to class or, yeah, people unfollow you. All kinds of terrible things. But um, they think it might have been partially the brain trying to prepare you for, like, if you got attacked by a tiger, you would you could have, like, already sort of addressed it in your brain beforehand because a lot of react those things to. you have to just react immediately. And it's, like, potentially related to your brain trying to prepare you for as many situations as possible and things like that. And I was like, we dream in case we get attacked by tigers? Like, what? I'm ready for it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So that was a really cool backstory. And it also kind of explained, too, like, why Bagra was so um, cold. Like, she was a cold person. And, I mean, her story about her sister and how she accidentally cut her in half I mean, how do you get over something like that? But she didn't even sound sorry about it. Yeah, she was like, I was a kid. It wasn't my fault. I was like, all right. 
Yeah, and basically, like, she was a mortal, and I was (laughs) me, you know? Yeah, she didn't really have a lot of remorse, but I mean, I guess she has had a long time to kind of come to terms with it. But I think it explains why she's so cold. Oh, for sure, yeah. It made, it was like the perfect backstory for both of those two characters. And it was kind of a great way to explain why, you know how I kept saying there's something about his tracking, Mal like has some special gift, I don't know what it is. Like, it was a great way to kind of bring that in. So it was, he was an ordinary person, but he had this, because of the Merzost, what's it called? Merzost? Merzost and his ancestry, he had some special connection to nature and and it explained to like him being the third amplifier, why he was able, to, like every time they touched is when they found the stag or the sea whip, because they because I yep. liked the explanation of like the amplifiers want to be brought together. Yep, it was so cool. Can you imagine though if you've just like always been able to tell like oh there's a bunny three meters that way and a bird six meters above me? I no. don't know why I'm talking in meters, <laughs> but um, we decided to be <laughs> European today. <laughs> <laughs> but then all of a sudden being like, I can't, like, does he even know how to really hunt and track? Or does he just, like, have this innate ability that disappeared and now he might be, like, one of the worst trackers? Who knows? <laughs> I would hate that ability because then I would know where every centipede was in relation to me. And I would never sleep again. It's <laughs> my worst fear, actually. <laughs> <laughs> my worst fear is to know where all living creatures are. <laughs> yes, gosh. Even worse know. than going on a game show? Uh, well, well, okay, space camp. Nothing's worse than space camp. <laughs> that was my big thing with the game shows. I was afraid I would win a trip to space camp. That's true, but I just remember it in that part. That was funny. Um, I also... I s- yeah, go ahead. I still want to know about Alina's background, though, and more about Mal's background. Like, I just... I still... I just want more. I hope some I of these... Short stories, which we've talked about, we'll read next, are more backstories for some of these characters. Because I want to see, like, what happened to um, Bagra's father and the his second daughter after they survived. And, I mean, I guess we already got the story, like, how Bagra felt really um, kind of abandoned by her own mother because she her mother feared her and there was that resentment there. Which I also don't really fully understand, like... Because the mother fell in love with the most powerful Grisha in the world, and all of a sudden she's scared of Grisha power. What? Well, she's own scared kid. of her daughter? I know, but, like, I sort of feel like it's, like, it doesn't sound like Morozova, like, hid that part of himself from her, so she should have been, like, kind of prepared for, like, she was literally married to the most powerful Grisha, like, that's ever come about. And that's a really good point. she gets scared of, like, a baby. Her own flesh and blood still. And what did you expect? I mean... Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, I guess that they said that Bagra could summon shadows, and that was, like, unusual. But still, it... I wish her father had taken more of an interest in her, too, because it kind of sounds like he mostly ignored her. But if she had this unique Grisha power, I wish he had kind of, like, explored or encouraged her, and she had had at least some parenting. Instead of making her feel like she was abnormal somehow. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get some more backstory in the book, because I agree, I wanted to... I wanted to see more of that. Yeah, I just want to go live in this book and learn way more about the Grishaverse. Can we just be heartrenders in the Grishaverse? <laughs> I, I also want to learn how to, like, do my makeup with my mind. Oh! <laughs> yeah, you know, the, would... like, how to kill people and do my makeup. That's what I want to learn. <laughs> I would really love Jenya to get rid of my dark circles, please. There's There aren't enough cucumbers in the world to get rid of mine. <laughs> Okay, so do you want to go on to a research segment? Let's do it. Okay. Do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Um, why don't you go first? Okay, I did kind of two things of research. So okay. the first thing that I researched was um, I, I really liked how the Soldat Soul had these tattoos all over them, and mm-hmm. like Maul got that tattoo on his back that was like, I, I am become a blade. And so I got curious about the history of tattoos. Okay. Um, So this is from the Smithsonian Magazine and National Geographic. Um, So I guess the oldest discovery of tattooed human skin is on 
a mummy that they found who they think lived around 3000 BC. His name is Otzi the Iceman. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny if that was his actual name? <laughs> like, we guessed right. We, like, picked a random name for him and that was right. <laughs> that was our actual name. It kind of sounds like Frosty the Snow. I don't know. I was thinking yeah, Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> I kept singing that in my head when I was doing this research. So he was found on the border between Austria and Italy, and he had tattoos on his lower spine, knee, and ankle joints. And hmm. the location of the tattoos suggests that they actually served a therapeutic purpose, so that they may have been applied to alleviate joint pain, because that's those are areas where you tend to have joint pain. Okay. And I had never heard of the idea of a tattoo being associated with alleviating pain, but I guess it kind of is similar to acupuncture. I was going to say, maybe they didn't even mean to leave marks, but they were doing something with needles or, you know, something sharp. Yeah, that left an imprint. Yeah. Or, I mean, you know, maybe that wasn't the intent, wasn't to leave the mark, but the process that they used back then maybe did or something. Yeah. Um, So I thought that was cool. And there was also an instance, similarly, um, they found in Egypt there were mummies they found and there were tattoos on them but only on the women and they dated back to 1200 to 1300 bc and there's some debate some people think the tattoos were to mark them as um like prostitutes but the other people think that because of the location of the tattoos so they were found on the abdomen thighs and breasts of the women and they said um, it probably was also a therapeutic application uh, during childbirth. Or it was like a tattoo that safeguarded against uh, a, a, an unsafe delivery or a, a bad delivery. I guess, if, I guess if you're giving birth, a tattoo wouldn't hurt as much in comparison. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, maybe it would be like getting an epidural. Oh, man. I've never had a tattoo. I don't, I've never... Have you- have you ever had acupuncture? I have. I did, actually, for the first time. I went to um, L.A., and I did – I had a wonderful day, and I had I did cupping and acupuncture, and then they put these needles in my ears for anxiety, oh. and they said if I felt anxious, I could just press on these um, needles that they left – they weren't needles. They were beads or seeds or something, and I could just press on my ears to alleviate anxiety. So I did that at work a lot, and, like, whenever I was stressed <laughs> – my boss would just look over and I would just be like squeezing my ears and it was like a way to tell <laughs> Did it work? It was just a way to tell him that I was stressed. Um, I guess so. I don't know. I, I really liked the acupuncture, but I didn't have anything that I was trying to treat. It was more just to kind of experience it. So would you do it again if you had something to treat? I, I actually would, yeah. It I will, will say it was, um, I always heard that it didn't feel... The needles didn't feel like needles going in, but it absolutely felt like needles going in. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't like super painful, but like you felt the needles going in. And I think at one point I had like almost 50 all over my back and then she put them in my head too, like in my scalp. And then she left and I had to just really focus on like not freaking out about the fact that I had 50 needles. I would start hyperventilating a thousand percent. Needles already freak me I out. Know. That's why I don't have a tattoo because I can't see a needle or it, like I just couldn't do it. No. I mean, I did just get my ear pierced with my cousin over our cousin's trip. And the whole reason we did it was because one of my cousins had has migraines and she heard there's a point in your ear where if you get it pierced, it can alleviate migraines. Who knew ears were such a like amazing I know. organ that could treat all these issues? Who <laughs> knew? It's I, and she said it actually works. Like she got it done, and she said that her migraines have been better. So hey, that's crazy. One of these days we'll have to research ears and healing abilities or something. Except that we'll have to do it with the caveat that nothing we say is supported by any kind of fact, and we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, don't do anything that we tell you to do or use us for medical advice. Please. Don't tattoo your ears. <laughs> what was the what was that tie a chicken to yourself cure for the plague that we told people about? Don't do oh, that either. No. <laughs> don't drink your urine. I don't know. We we say a lot of stuff we don't mean. <laughs> um, we're just talking. So the other thing with tattoos were um, the Greeks and Romans used tattooing to mark slaves. 
as a sign of belonging or to punish people or to mark them as criminals. And in Japan, actually, this is super interesting. In Japan, they also use tattoos to mark criminals. And uh, for the first offense, a criminal would be marked with a single line across his forehead. And then for a second offense, you would receive another mark, which was like an arch. And then for the third offense, they added another line. And after three offenses, the um, character that they created on your forehead was the symbol for the Japanese word dog. Huh. And did it matter, like, how bad your crime was? I'm sure, yeah. They didn't say, like, what type of crime you had to commit to be marked, but um, they said it could be an origin for the phrase, three strikes and you're out. Ooh. But I love hearing the origin of I know. Me too. So that was, like, the history of tattoos. There were also stories about how um, some people got tattoos in Southeast Asia, this is popular, where if you had um, a certain skill, you would get a tattoo that would mark you as, say, like in a, comp- a really good hunter, or if you were a woman and you were a good weaver, you would get a tattoo that would mark you as having like a certain ability, which I thought was kind of interesting. But. Like instead of a business card, you her resume, you just like <laughs> show your forearm. You know, like I've got a knitting needle on my arm, so I'm a really good knitter. <laughs> exactly. It was. Kind of like their first LinkedIn. What would you, if you, if that was your business card or your, like, what would you get tattooed on yourself? Oh my gosh. If that was the purpose. Um, like a, a, a book. <laughs> I'm really, good, I'm really at good at reading. And I'm really good at baking. So a book and a donut. <laughs> oh yeah, you are good at baking. That's it. That's about it. <laughs> I'm just thinking of like all the things I would not get tattooed on me now. Like all the things I really suck at. What about you? <laughs> Just like put an X at the top and then a list of all the things Mm -hmm. you you can't do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what what am I even good at? I'm I feel like I'm a dabbler. Like I don't really get good at things. I get like okay at things and then I move on to something new. That's like my I like get bored really easily or something. But that means you also have a lot of interests. I have a lot of interests and I have a lot of half skills. Kind of like half facts in my stories. (laughs) Like a jack of all trades. Remember when we went knife throwing? Like I thought I would pursue that more professionally but I wanted to but then I realized like there's no place in, sh- in the middle of a city where you can just go throw knives randomly and not get arrested except that one place where we did throw knives randomly behind a like abandoned building or something know, but it was like an organized thing I don't know <laughs> knife throwing so funny we were good at it that's the thing that like we amazed me we, we got like all five in a row one time yeah at one time <laughs> But we learned two different throws, and we were each, like, naturally good at one of them, and they were the opposite ones. I remember. So we'd be a good like, team. You were like, how are you doing that? I was like, I have no idea. And then I was feeling really confident, and then we learned the other throw, and you were just, like, so good at it, and I couldn't do it very well. <laughs> should we be fighting partners? We should, probably. We could do, like, a back-to-back... Duo. Twirling, knife-throwing knife throwing thing. duo. I mean, if this podcast thing doesn't work out... <laughs> Or when we get bored with this project, I can be here. Once we've designed all those shirts, oh, I also have to be a shirt designer. So we're going to get knife tattoos <laughs> next time we see each other. That might communicate something bad. <laughs> we'll need to think. We'll need to look into what that says about okay. us. Um, so here's a fun tie-in. The thing I researched, and I think I told you I was researching this last week, but was stigmatas. Mm-hmm. And stigmata comes from the Greek word for mark or tattoo stigma so that's like oh. links to tattoos but the stigmata is like a christian term used to describe when someone has either marks or pains or some kind of sensation that corresponds to the wounds that jesus christ had during the crucifixion so usually it's the hands and feet where the nails went in sometimes it's also the side where you know he was pierced um, at the end and sometimes also the brow or around the head where he had the, uh, oh, the crown, the crown of thorns. Yep. So, um, I started looking into this because I was thinking about, this is kind of back to the first part of the book, but when Alina marked that one soldier in the white cathedral with her hand, Mm -hmm. but then also kind of, again, the same idea of these people kind of worshiping and markings and how that relates to religion and whatnot. So I, didn't know that much about it, and there was actually kind of a lot of interesting things going on. So some of the um, more famous cases 
are like St. Francis of Assisi. I didn't know he was a stigmatist. (laughs) He had a stigmatism. (laughs) Stigmatic. He's the first recorded stigmatic in Christian history. Um, And I guess he saw like a winged angel. And as the angel approached it, he saw that it was crucified and he, he like had this emotional, spiritual reaction to it. And when the angel left, he had the wounds on his hands, feet and side, um, that mimicked the, the other one, um, the, the Jesus guy. That guy. I know him. I've heard of him. Um, And then another really famous one is St. Padre Pio of Pietrelicina, who I hadn't heard of, but fun fact, I went to church today, or not today, I went to church this week, and um, they were asking for volunteers because my church is actually hosting the relics of St. Pius of Pietrelicina in October. Where are they getting them from? Um, So, I I don't, it didn't say in this little blurb, I guess I could probably look into more about it, but um, it's the only church in our our diocese who's hosting it. Let's see. The Relics Tour is a celebration of 130 years since his birth and 15 years since his canonization. Wow. Okay, these are the reliquaries that will be available. There's going to be a cotton gauze with blood stains, crusts of the wounds of the stigmata, a glove which covered his stigmata, a handkerchief, a lock of hair, and St. Pius's medal. Mantle. But some of those sound kind of gross, but it's kind of a cool thing. So he experienced... Um, the stigmata for like 50 years. Oh my God. So he had it for, he had 50 years. Yeah. And he was the first priest in the history of the Catholic church to have them. Um, yeah. So he started getting them in 1918. He was ordained in 1910. So like eight years after becoming a priest. And I think he died in 1968. So it was like, yeah, over 50 years of him having the stigmata, but he also like, wasn't like it's not like something that you're like hey check out my markings right so that was one thing he used to always wear gloves to cover them up and things like that so do we does he do we know for sure he had them well so there's a lot of people who think he faked it or you know there's like for everyone who's had the stigmata there's a lot of like people who say like based on science or it's a mental it's not actually Mm -hmm. you know a religious thing or, or whatever so there's lots of like debate about whether or not he really did. But I think it's commonly accepted by people who believe in such things that he was a stigma- stigmatic. Yeah. Like, I think that's part that's of part his... Of the faith. Obviously, if part of his relics are related to the stigmata, I think um, it's, like, accepted by the church, at least, that that really happened. But um, I thought one of the more interesting saints that I read about who had them was St. Gemma Galgani. Um, and she supposedly, like, had... It would come and go every Thursday night to Friday afternoon. Oh, so like Holy Thursday through... Yeah. So it would appear and it would get worse and worse from Thursday night until Friday afternoon and then it would go away again until the next week. And she had it happen for three years until she prayed for the visible signs to go away. So she would still feel the pain, but the um, wounds stopped happening. And I think lots of people say, or there's, you know, there's talk about the visible stigmata versus people who just feel the pain. And again, kind of this idea of it being like kind of a saint, religious thing, and people feeling humble. It's not like something you brag about and like, hey, come check out my stigmata. So yeah, a lot of these people do kind of can switch or hide it or whatever. Was she a saint? Yeah. So she was the patron saint of students, actually. Oh. I forget. She She died like really young. Um, I think she was 25. Oh my gosh. She had tuberculosis. Yeah. But it was back in 1903. So, I mean, she was tuberculosis. Yeah. I, um, went to Assisi when you were talking about St. Francis Mm -hmm. when I was in Italy and the basilica there is one of the most beautiful things I, I saw. And we actually went to the crypt and we saw some of his relics. Um, we saw some of his clothing and... I think some of his blood or something like that. Um, so actually, I do remember learning about the stigmata that he received. I like always think of him as like, you know, in elementary school, we do like blessing of the pets. And that's when we would talk oh, about right. St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> and that's like all I really remembered about him. Because he was the saint of animals, right? Yep. I remember that. 
Very cool. Well, speaking of animals, the other research I did this week was um, about the firebird. Ooh, good. I thought you might. So I wanted to just kind of look up the history of the firebird because I knew that uh, it's a a legend that isn't unique to this book. Mm -hmm. It, you know, exists in real non-fantasy life, too. Um... (laughs) It does feature heavily in, like, a lot of folklore, um, especially uh, Russian folklore. And, and, you know, there's a ballet by Stravinsky that is called The Firebird. And so I just looked up some versions of the story. And there are so many versions of The Firebird, the story of The Firebird. It's usually the object of, um, like, a hard quest. So it's – and it usually is – initiated by someone finding a lost tail feather of the firebird and then it leads to this um, quest to find the bird itself that's and, cool it's also yeah. cool because there were a lot of it sounded like compared to the other two the stag and the sea whip that there were way more stories about the firebird and they didn't all line up or like point in one direction or place so that's kind of cool that there's also lots of stories in real life there really is. The um, the one that I found that I thought was the most interesting, it's called The Firebird and Princess Vasilisa. Vasilisa. So there was an archer who was on a hunt, and he finds the firebird's feather, which is how many of the legends begin. And his horse can talk, apparently, and his horse <laughs> tells him not to touch it because he said if he touches the feather, something bad will happen. But he takes the feather anyway, of course. And he takes it back to the king as a gift. And the king is really greedy. And so he demands that the hunter find the whole firebird and bring it back to him or he'll die. (laughs) And so the horse is like really helpful in this story. And he tells the hunter to put corn in the field and to lure the bird that way. And so he does and he captures it. And so he gives it to king. And then the king is so happy that he wants more like it's kind of like a lesson in like it's like if you give a mouse a cookie kind of, <laughs> because but the fire with bird. death as the result <laughs> if you don't if you give a king a firebird <laughs> so then he decides that he wants the hunter to find him a princess the princess vasilisa so he can marry her how did he go from firebird to princess i have no idea i guess he's like if you can find a bird you can find me someone to marry <laughs> Oh, man. Sometimes I wish I could be a king and make ridiculous demands of people. Kill every centipede that you can sense within five miles of myself. Oh, you brought me a cookie? Bring me a prince. (laughs) (laughs) And all the puppies. Yes, for sure. Just bring me Sturman. Okay, so he says, fetch me this princess so I can marry her. or, Or you'll die. So the hunter goes to the princess, and this is awful, but he drugs her with wine to bring her back to the king. And she's understandably pissed off. <laughs> and so she tells the archer or the hunter if she's going to be married, she needs her wedding dress. And her wedding dress is, for some reason, under a rock in the blue sea. <laughs> so <laughs> he goes and gets it. And then she says that she won't marry the king until the hunter is dipped in boiling water. So she's real mad about this. <laughs> she, oh, yeah. She wants him boiled alive for kidnapping her and drugging her, which I don't entirely blame her for. So um, the horse, though, <laughs> this story is so ridiculous. The horse puts a spell on the hunter, and it protects him from the water. So he gets dipped in boiling water, but he comes out even more handsome than before. <laughs> and so the king gets really excited because he sees that the hunter jumped in boiling water and came out really attractive. So the king jumps into the boiling water, but he's boiled alive (laughs) because he doesn't have the horse's protection. And then the hunter becomes king and marries the princess. How did the hunter become king? That's a really good question. I don't know. Like, Also, I want to hear more about this horse and where he learned all these spells and how to catch fire. And where I can get one. Yeah. And, And how the hunter even came across this horse. That seemed like the smartest thing he did. Yeah, if you have a talking horse, like, why would the king give that to his hunter? I'd keep that for myself. I, don't I would, know. too. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's... Go ahead. I know. I was just going to say, it's, um, it does tie into this story, though, this legend, because at the heart of it is greed, right? Yeah. 
so it's like the king just keeps he wants more and more and more and keeps making these demands and he ends up boiled alive yeah it's a good lesson mm-hmm. and like greed is you know such an important part of the story how like they keep hunting for all these amplifiers yeah what was that phrase the only thing limitless or the only oh yeah what is limitless yeah the universe and the greed of men yep I forgot also, did you ever do any research on, at the in the prologue of this book, there was something about like a worm that was underground when they were in the White Castle, there was some legend. Oh, no. I forgot about that. Well, I'm, I am excited because that, uh, you know how we said Lee Bardugo is coming out with a collection of fairy tales mm-hmm. that are all based in the Grishaverse, so I'm kind of excited no. when that comes out to see if some of these... If there's more Soon. about these guys. Yeah, it's this, later this month. it comes out September. Yeah. Maybe we can read it and do, like, another little segment. Yeah, we'll have to. Um, so, is there anything else you want to talk about with the book? Nope. Okay. Well, I have a question. We always say, like, what scene would we want to see made into a movie? Oh, yeah. So, what scene do you want to see? Oh, man. Well, I think maybe the Firebird scene. Where she discovered she's the amount of the amplifier. Yeah, but also even just the way the firebird was like, you know, kind of attacking them and the way it came up from the waterfalls looked like, I don't know, it just seemed like kind of a really beautiful place and like some majesticness to it. Obviously, one of the battle scenes would also be a cool thing to see. Um, It would also be cool to see where all the regular people get like this light ability and how they use that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And how the fold breaking up. Yeah. What would you pick? I'm trying to think, like, out of the whole series, I think I really want to see, um, I keep thinking back to the very first book where she does the demonstration with the Darkling, where she, like, uses her light for the first time in that ballroom, and mm-hmm. just, like, how spectacular that would be. Um, and also when they're hunting the sea whip, I think, like, that part at sea and, like, the sea battle, I think that would be really cool. I also think seeing when they're first in the Kingfisher, whatever the first one was called. Mm. Like, when she's like, what is this thing doing? And they go up in the air, and it seems just kind of, like, comedic. And then we get to see Nikolai. In the- Anything with Nikolai. I want to see <laughs> on the big screen. So how many – are we going to give a rating to the series? Yeah. What are we going to choose? How many amplifiers? We Ampli- that's it? good. How many amplifiers? Out of ten. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give it nine. Okay. I was going to say eight. But – I don't really have a reason to not give it more, except I just feel like there could be something better out there sometime. And I still have questions. Well, there are a few things. Like, you you, <laughs> you really wanted to see more of Nadia. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of think I don't get Mal's resurrection or whatever, but... Yeah. But um, I am really excited to stay in this world a little bit longer. Me too. So, we're going to read short stories for next week. Yes. Tell us what they are. Um... Okay, the short stories we're going to read for next week are The Witch of Duva, The Too Clever Fox, The Tailor, The Demon in the Woods, and The Little Knife. What was the last one? The Little Knife. Okay. And maybe we'll also read the um, letter Mal writes Alina. Okay, yeah, let's do let's do that too. And they're all in the back of, most of them are in the backs of my books, but I think you said they're also free online. I think I found one or two that were um like free online that I didn't have so Perfect. I need to do a full assessment but yeah cool cool all right and I guess we could talk briefly about how hopefully anyone who's listening enjoyed our Sunday guest uh speaker oh yeah our super fan Sunday super fan Sunday. tell people about that well, it was just my sister came by and saw the podcast set up and wanted to help out or get involved. She's been reading along with most of the books and really is was liking this series um, and had a lot of fun with it. And then we were talking about turning it into something we do a little more often. So um, look out for more Super Fan Sundays. Yeah, we're going to invite a fan to come and talk with us about, give us their take on the series we're reading and kind of get a different perspective. It's nice to like do something with the people who listen that's like a little bit more interactive yeah it was a lot of fun for me too yeah and thank you again to everyone who's listening and to everyone who's been following us on instagram like it's so amazing the community like the community of people who are into ya and who love reading books like the fandom is 
it has just been so amazing to see and everyone's just been so nice and so welcoming and like we're new to Instagram and thank you to everyone who's been following us we really really appreciate it yeah and again book idea recommendations or we yeah we love the interaction we love all of that um do you have a joke for me this week I do okay and this is a straight up dad joke from my dad oh thanks Bill well, I mean, he didn't write it or anything, but he gave it, he, he was like, do you need a new dad joke this week? And I was like, always, dad. <laughs> and then I had him text it to me, so I wouldn't mess it up. Okay. That's so sweet. Why do Danish warships have barcodes on the stern? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so they can Scandinavian. <laughs> That's one my sister accidentally just gave away the punchline to, but I cut it out of our... Uh, (laughs) thank you bill that was amazing (laughs) he was pretty proud of that one so we'll see what he comes up with in a couple weeks (laughs) it is it is funny he's also that's like his way of interacting he always like he feels like it's his role as my dad to provide dad jokes on a regular basis so that's been well we should say if anyone has a a dad joke they want to give us Email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com, and we might read it and claim it as our own. Just kidding. (laughs) We'll We'll give you credit. We'll give credit eventually, maybe. Yeah. Under our breath. Under our laughs. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. Anything else? No, I think I'm good. I'll see you next week. Okay. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.